If someone were to ask you, what is the most important relationship in the entire universe? What would you say? Well, odds are your response would probably be along the lines of, well, the most important relationship is between me and my spouse or me and my children. But what does the biblical narrative show us about the most important relationship ever? This relationship is defined as covenant, a relationship between God and man. And obviously, you would probably agree that the most important relationship one human can have with another person or being would be between them and God. But why? What is it about God that makes our relationship with him so unique or so special? Today, we're going to look at an important topic within the biblical narrative, covenant. And you may be asking yourself, what is that about? I hear a lot of it, but why does it matter so much? Well, if you're living in ancient Israel, covenant is the thread which holds the entire fabric of reality between God and man together. And you may argue, but we're not living in ancient Israel. So what does that have to do with me? And you'd be right. But if you think about the marriage between two people, that's essentially what covenant is. It's an agreement between two people or parties made with vows, oaths, and sealed with a common goal to commit to honoring and loving each other no matter what. A covenant is about two different people bringing together their unique abilities to accomplish something that they would never be able to accomplish alone. And the Bible is full of these examples, showing us just how important covenant really is. But rarely do we ever give it a second thought. I mean, think about it. The Bible is broken up into two sections, Old Testament, New Testament. But the root words of those books are Old Covenant and New Covenant. Covenant is everywhere when reading the Bible. And in this episode, we're going to look at a term that we really don't think about too often. And if you've been around the Christian faith for some time, you've probably heard the word covenant used loosely in conversation or maybe sermon. But what does covenant mean? And what are its implications for us living in the modern world? And what did covenant mean to the biblical authors? Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. My encouragement to you is to grab a laptop, a notebook, pen and paper, because today is going to be a little eye-opening and a whole lot of nerdy. So here we go. All right, welcome everybody to episode six of the Imagers podcast. Today we're talking about covenant. And in the introduction, I kind of forewarned you, today would be a day that you would take notes. And if you at some point feel like you aren't keeping up, just know we've posted all of the links to certain things and pictures and websites in the show notes below. So if you're listening and you're like, what is the Fertile Crescent? You could just scroll down to the show notes as you're listening and click on the URL, and it'll link you to to some of the stuff we're actually talking about today. But today is exciting. Like this is a new series we're going to get into uh, of covenant, and we we plan to talk about covenant in the Old Testament in this episode, and then in the next episode we're going to talk about covenant in the New Testament, and then in the soon future we're going to talk about covenant, uh, what covenant means as as Christians in community and the church and the role that the church plays in in the role that we play out covenant with our relationship, not only with God, but with other people. Uh, So today we are going to get into it. Now, before we do, I think that um, in order to kind of adequately summarize the idea of covenant, I really think it'd be beneficial to play you a video from the Bible Project on covenant. And if you have listened to this already, or you've never listened to it, I think it's good to hear it again. And if it's your first time, the Bible Project's a great, a great resource for a lot of these kind of general terms and topics that you'll kind of bump into when reading the Bible. And they have a great video on covenant. So I want to cut to that. It's about five minutes long, and then we're going to come back and start the episode. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or 
maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil. But despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man. That Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning.
Okay, so that pretty much covered the idea of covenant from you know Genesis to Revelation really well, and I thought that that would be you know perfect to kind of share and let you listen in on because it hits on obviously you know the major uh, themes of covenant, kind of the backstory of the covenant between different Bible characters like Noah and Abraham and Israel and David and you know Jesus. Uh, but today we're going to focus specifically on Abraham and Israel. So covenant, as as they shared a little bit in the video, covenant is this partnership that exists to to bind or bond uh, others together, right? So so two parties that were not in relationship to come into a relationship uh, and partner together for the the greater good, and that's essentially what you know. Not just the Bible describes as covenant, but what we read about as covenant kind of manifested and fleshed out in the narratives. And the reason that this is important is because it's about two different people bringing together their unique ability or abilities to accomplish something that they couldn't do alone, right? So for example, uh, in Genesis, the initiative for the first humans to you know, be fruitful and multiply. Well, you can't be fruitful and multiply unless two people come together to form a partnership, right? Like a man and a woman have to come together and consummate the marriage in order for them uh, to have children, right? So children are the byproduct of the covenant partnership of a man and a woman. And so, the you know, for example, the Old Testament might might be hard for some of us, you know, to read through. It's kind of, you know, one scholar calls it, you know, it's the dysfunctional closet syndrome. You know, everybody has that drawer in the house or that area of your house where it's just, you know, you can have a really tidy house, but there's at least one drawer or corner of your house where stuff is thrown and it's got, you know, an old iPhone charger in there, maybe some keys to a lock you don't even know, you know, exists anymore, some rubber bands, a double A battery, etc. Sometimes we treat the Old Testament like that, like it's this compilation of a bunch of random things and we don't know how to sift through it. And my encouragement would would be for you as you read the Old Testament and and in the New Testament is that covenant dominates the entire narrative, right? Um, So we're going to get started. So covenant basically assisted in creating kinship, right? Creating family relationships amongst people who were never really related to begin with. And in the ancient, you know, in ancient Israel and the ancient Near East, which we're going to talk a little bit about that term, ancient Near East, uh, relationships, specifically family relationships, were the most important aspect of ancient life. Okay, so the concept of covenant of bringing people together in family, it actually dominates the entire religious life of of ancient Israel. You know, and as West as Westerners, we're we're, we're mostly ethnocentric, meaning that we perceive other cultures through our cultural lens, and we judge other cultures based on, you know, the convictions or maybe the standards that we have within our culture, and so. When we talk about an idea like covenant, you know, 3,000 years ago in ancient Israel, it's hard to understand what it really means uh, to the ancient world. And so today we're going to take a little field trip back in time. And I want to say this, if the Bible had a body, covenant would be the entire skeletal system in which the entire biblical narrative hangs upon. Like it is the strength of the scriptures, uh, the topic of covenant. So I said a term earlier that I want to kind of dissect ancient Near East. So the ancient Near East is essentially, and this is where you'd want to click on the link below, on the Fertile Crescent. So the Fertile Crescent, the ancient Near East, was kind of this geographical range of, you would have kind of Egypt, and it kind of looks like if you're not, you know, if you're driving in the car or whatnot, essentially imagine kind of a rainbow, right? You have have a starting point, and it kind of bows, and you have an ending point. Well, at that starting point, you would have kind of the you know, Egypt, right? So this dominant powerhouse, the Egyptians. And as you moved up towards the top of the rainbow, you'd have like the Hittite empire, um, Assyria. And as you're coming down, you'd have like Babylon, uh, you know, over there in Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt. And this is around probably like, you know, 2000 to 1500 BC, this fertile crescent of all these nations uh, within, you know, relative proximity Uh, And so the ancient Near East was essentially this area. And what we don't understand or we may not understand is that the idea of forming a covenant or we'll we'll say the term treaty of establishing a treaty uh, wasn't foreign to the ancient Near East. It was actually a common practice. And 
when people would form a covenant back in the ancient Near East, they would document, and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but we're going to kind of go back. But basically, when two parties came together to form a treaty, they would document it on on stone or tablets, right? So if you're also reading in the show notes, you can click on the link that links to the treaty tablet between Egypt and the Hittite nations. So you can click on that to kind of see an example of what that means. But basically, archaeologists have discovered over a recent, you know, period of times that they've discovered these tablets. And, and on the tablets are these inscriptions about uh, blessings and curses and and two parties coming together to form an alliance, whether that be, you know, for the need or purpose of a, a military, you know, invasion or war or you know, maybe there's famine and, and one nation didn't have enough resources to kind of lean on. So another nation came in and formed a treaty with them. So archaeologists have discovered these these treaty tablets and they're really fascinating. And we're going to get into why they're so fascinating when we get to Exodus 20. Basically, whenever we read about covenant, especially specifically like in Genesis 15, which we're going to get into shortly, we have to realize that international covenants or ancient Near Eastern peace treaties existed and occurred well before Abram. And if you're taking some notes, you can write these down, but uh, the Treaty of Mezalim was around 2500 BC. The Treaty of Logesh, kind of around the same time, 2500 BC. Uh, the Treaty of Assyria and Babylon, we have archaeological evidence and historical evidence for this treaty between these two nations, Assyria and Babylon, uh, into which treaty tablets, or at least, you know, the the, the T around town has in history has has showed us that these two nations, Assyria and Babylon, formed a, a treaty, a covenant partnership. And that was around the 1400 BC. Now, we actually have physical evidence of the Treaty of Kadesh, right? And so if you clicked on that link, uh, you can read about it. But around 1200 BC, which actually is the same exact time period to when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, the Treaty of Kadesh took place around the same time, and we actually have those tablets to to visually inspect and look at and to confirm like the historicity of, of these treaties that actually existed, right? And this will all make sense because when Yahweh comes to, Je- to Abram in Genesis 15, Abram's not caught off guard with this kind of these stipulations and these these verbal agreements and and this laying out of a blessing and a curse. This is Abram's world that he lived in. And for a lot of us, when we're reading the Bible, what we don't realize is that Abram was from the land of Ur, right? Abram wasn't wasn't an Israelite. The Israelite people didn't form into a nation until post-Abram. So Yahweh actually picked a pagan Gentile out of an entire nation to form a covenant with him so that through his lineage, the nation of Israel would be birthed and and they would be born. And a lot of us miss that note that Abram was a Gentile, right? He doesn't, he's a, he's a nobody until the Lord extends this invitation to come into relationship with the God of the universe. And so we miss that note. In the ancient Near East, there were two types of treaties. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. One was a parody treaty which would be between two equal parties. It, it could be, you know, like a modern day United States and China or, you know, modern day Russia and China, something something that's equivalent to the nations together. Then, so that was the first type of treaty, a parity treaty. The second treaty was a, a suzerain vassal treaty. So this was between two parties, but one was significantly greater than the other one. So you could definitely tell who who is the, who is the stronger party. Now, the stronger party in ancient times was known as a suzerain, and the weaker party was known as a vassal. And the suzerain-vassal treaty, the primary purpose was to establish a firm relationship between these two parties in which the interests of the suzerain were actually the primary and ultimate concern, right? So the concern wasn't with within the, the, the lesser, smaller nation. It was with uh, the focus and emphasis was on the, the more powerful or dominant nation. Now, what the suzerain-vassal treaty would do is it would take the greater party, so i.e. the suzerain, and they would provide benefits to the vassal, such as like military protection, land grants, whatever it may be. And in response, the vassal would not only verbally, but covenantally, right, uh, agree to, to be loyal to the suzerain, the greater party. And what this treaty would do 
is is it created fictive kinships of like family relationships between these two people in which the entire relationship was a motivation for obedience, right? Now, a suzerain, if you were going to kind of depict what a suzerain would be, it's usually, and it was mostly a kind of a king or an authority type figure over like a nation or an area, right? So it could be like, you know, the prince of Persia or the king of Babylon, like a Nebuchadnezzar type, right? Or a pharaoh of Egypt. And they would be able to offer security and provision to, to lesser countries or nations or people group. And when you are a suzerain, you are allowed to form multiple treaties or covenants with multiple vassals. However, a vassal wasn't allowed to form multiple treaties with suzerains. If you were a vassal, you could only come into a covenant treaty agreement with one suzerain. And so a vassal, if you kind of want to think through this, is it's it would it would be a small nation or people group, or maybe even like it could be like one person, right? A foreigner or a sojourner that was kind of looking for protection and support and provision. So for example, if you're like a small nation and a great nation like Babylon comes against you with military power, that small nation could reach out to like an Egypt. But this smaller nation would would cut a covenant with a greater nation with the hopes of that greater nation coming in to protect it. And again, the vassal was only able to have one covenant with one suzerain, right? um, These scholars say that each party essentially was to obey the commands that would be outlined in the covenant. And if they did so, they were they were showing each other chesed, and that's a Hebrew term. Chesed means like loyal love or loving kindness. But if a vassal was to forsake chesed and was to take on a covenant with another suzerain or lord, it would be essentially considered treason, more authoritative figure, and then you have a younger, weaker, you know, adolescent type figure. And this is the sort of covenant that actually Yahweh would establish with Israel at Mount Sinai, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. And so this concept may be kind of brand new for us as we start to break in and dialogue into today's show, but this concept was not foreign for ancient Israel. And if you are referencing the show notes below, when you click on the Fertile Crescent link, you'll notice that the space between Egypt, and if you go straight north to the Hittite Empire, there's Tyre there, but it's kind of empty land. You see like this strip of empty land, like there's no nation that has actually, um, there's no label on that for any nation. Well, that's because that's that would become Israel. That would become the Jewish land, promised land that Yahweh promises the Israelites. So you'll notice if you're in Babylonia or Assyria or you're in the Hittite Empire, to get down to Egypt or vice versa, for Egypt to get over to those other nations, there would be a trade route that you'd have to go along. And that trade route would one day become Israel. So the land that's promised to Israel is very vital, right? Because Israel was the main trade route between the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. And we'll get into the why that matters. But what I want to do is I want to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about treaty forms, right? So what does it look like to form a covenant with another nation and why does it matter so much? So now we're going to kind of break down what a ancient Near Eastern treaty agreement slash form really looked like. We're going to break it up by section. So in the ancient Near East, when a suzerain would form a treaty with a vassal or vice versa, there would be six kind of steps that would take place during this interaction, right? There would be an introduction or a preamble. And in the introduction, a suzerain or a king, right, would introduce themselves Uh, His name, maybe his legacy, and things that he, you know, uh, his personal elements, essentially. And the emphasis during the introduction would be placed upon his majesty and power as a king over an area or nation. He would introduce himself like this, like, uh, my name is so-and-so, and this is who I am, right? Then he would go into kind of a historical prologue, which would be kind of like a formal list of accomplishments that this king has, you know, obviously accomplished. And what these accomplishments would do is they would be an introductory to obligation, right? So if a vassal, if you're a smaller nation who's who's needing a suzerain, you're listening to the suzerain sort of boast about all of their accomplishments and their successes, right? Like I've 
destroyed so-and-so in war and I've done this and this is how, you know, much lot or loot I have in gold and war spoils. And so you're, you're thinking like as a vassal, wow, like this, this person's really powerful. And because they're so powerful, like I'm obligated to like honor this person, right? And so the king would sort of saying, hey, this is what I've done. And this is what I can do for you, right? If we form this treaty. Now the vassal in this scenario is to offer future obedience because, you know, in the present, there's not really much they can offer outside of obedience. And they would offer the future obedience based on these past benefits that the suzerain would, would discuss. And then after they kind of go through this historical prologue, in the third step, the suzerain would list the stipulations for the covenant treaty. And basically, the king would detail his expectations for obligation from the vassal. So the obligations kind of imposed upon and accepted by this vassal would be you know, i.e., if you are to come into a treaty agreement with me, you are not allowed to have dependence upon another god or another king. Like, you will serve me and you will serve our gods type thing. And then it would move into a blessing and a curse. So the blessing, obviously, would be the suzerain allotting benefits to the vassal if they showed chesed, right? If they showed loyal love. But if the vassal did not honor the covenant, there would be curses invoked upon them. Some of the curses could look like, for example, a suzerain turning his entire military against that vassal nation or people group. Uh, he could strip them of uh, of their throne, right? So if, if this is a specific vassal, you know, a smaller king, a weaker king of a nation, uh, that suzerain could strip the throne from that vassal. And even in extreme cases, that vassal state could be annihilated or even exiled. And then in step five of six, it would move on to the witnesses. And basically... The witnesses of the covenant treaty in the ancient Near Eastern region were deities, right? So they were these gods. Basically, the suzerain would list out a number of gods and, and then he would say, you know, like, for example, if you're Nebuchadnezzar forming a an ancient Near Eastern, you know, a suzerain vassal treaty with another nation, you would say, the, the witness to this covenant today is Marduk, right? The god uh, in Babylon. And, and he has agreed to testify against you, vassal, if you violate the commandments. And one thing we don't understand in the post-Christian, post-modern, you know, Western world is that the worship of deities was uh, ubiquitous. Everybody believed in gods. They believed there were multiple gods. They would sacrifice to these gods. And deities were just an extension of your worldview and your paradigm, right? Like it wasn't a question of if they're real, they they knew they were real. And so the witnesses in the ancient Near East would basically be these gods that were called upon to act as a witness to the covenant, right? And you can read, you can read about this, I think it's in Ezekiel 17, where Yahweh himself is actually acting as a witness to a covenant being formed, like, like God himself has become a witness to, to a treaty. Uh, and then step six would be the provision, right? So after all these oaths and these introductions and blessings and curses and stipulations were were made and verbalized, there would be a sacrifice given. And a written record of this covenant would be written on a tablet, and there would be two copies. One would go home with the suzerain, and one would go home with the vassal. And what they would do with these copies is they would deposit them into sort of like their temple, and they would pull it out once a year or however often, and they would read it periodically in public so that others would know so-and-so, you know, 40 years ago, before you were ever born, we have formed a covenant with this nation. And today we're going to remind you of the stipulations so that you do not violate the covenant, right? And they would read over the blessings and the curses. Like if you honor this covenant as your forefathers did, uh, the suzerain will do this for you. But if you violate it, like the suzerain will do this to you. So what I want to read through is what I want to read in Genesis 15. We're, today we're going to look at Genesis 15, and then we're going to get in a little bit to Exodus 20, because I think these are two great examples. And again, they're not, this doesn't cover the entirety of covenant in the Old Testament, but I think this this episode will kind of serve as an, an introductory to the idea of covenant, maybe provoke some of you who, you know, like this stuff, who want to geek out about it. It'll kind of provoke you to do more research but really, even for some of you who, when you read about covenant, you read about Abraham cutting animals in half, you're thinking like, what the heck is going on? I think that this will kind of, you know, reassure you that, hey, this isn't just some random story. Like, this is all a setup. Okay, so Genesis 15. What What's the context? Well, God decides, just like with Adam and Eve, to pick a special person out of a, 
uh, an existing people group and he calls them out of that people group and into relationship with himself, right? So just like Adam and Eve, he plucks them out of an already existing people group, puts them in a garden to form a covenant with them. Same thing with Noah. There are multiple people living on the earth. It's not just Noah and his family, but Yahweh decides the only one righteous living is Noah. So I'm going to pluck him and his family out of this world, and I'm going to form a special bond and relationship with them. The same happens with Abram in the land of Ur, right? So here's this Gentile man who doesn't deserve to have a relationship with God or to be in covenant with God or to be invited into a covenant with God. But God decides that this is the person I've picked and I've chosen to form a covenant so that this people group will be birthed through him as his inheritance. And you have to ask, well, why would he pick this random dude like Abram? What was so special? Nothing. There was nothing special about Abram. It was that God desired to form a relationship with him. That's what makes it special, right? And when we break down Genesis 15, as you know, we just did with the treaty form, we'll start reading through this and realizing like, whoa, wait a second. Yahweh actually adopts the contemporary model of covenant treaties in the ancient Near East to communicate his divine plan to Abram, right? Abraham's not caught off guard by this when there needs to be animals splitting And when Yahweh just introduces himself, Abram knows like, I am a vassal and here is a suzerain inviting me into a kinship with him. And if you notice, and I kind of want to just say this first of all, before we actually read it, in Genesis 15, God actually forewarns Abram that, hey, I'm going to form a covenant with you, but here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that I'm going to give you the stipulations, the blessing and curses, etc., because I want to form a relationship with you. But here's what's going to happen. You as a vassal, you and your and your people, the generations after you, Abram, they're not going to honor it. And what's going to happen is they're actually going to be strangers in a foreign country and they're going to be enslaved and oppressed for about 400 years. But I will execute judgment on the nation that they serve. And then it says, and after those 400 years, they're going to come out with many possessions. But as for you, Abram, and your ancestors, you're going to die. You're not going to see this. What's that all about? Well, we know if we read in Exodus 12, Israel suffered at the hands of Egypt for 400 years. But God promised Abram, but after 400 years, I'm going to go judge that nation that oppresses them, and I'm going to rescue them for myself. So the whole idea of God saving Israel out of Egypt and bringing them to Sinai is because he's honoring the covenant that he's going to form right here in Genesis 15 with Abram, right? It's, he's not just rescuing them out of Egypt to, to just rescue them out of Egypt. It's because he's promised uh, to show chesed to Israel, to show loyal love and loving kindness, right? God always upholds his end of the bargain. So let's just read through Genesis 15, and then I'll point out a few things that we should note. Uh, verse 1, uh, Genesis 15, and I'm reading in the New English Translation. And if you're reading it in the in the a New English translation, the subtitle would be The Cutting of the Covenant. Verse 1, after these things, the Lord's message came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and the one who will reward you in great abundance. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what will you give me since I continue to be childless and my heir is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram added, and since you haven't given me a descendant, then look, one is born in my house uh, will be my heir. The Lord's message came to him. This man will not be your heir, but instead a son who comes from your own body. Verse 5, the Lord took him outside and said, gaze into the sky and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so will your descendants be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. And then the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, by what can I know that I'm able to possess it. And the Lord said to Abram, take for me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram took all of these for him and then cut them in two and placed each half opposite of the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down in the carcass, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, and when the sun went down, Abram fell sound asleep and a great terror overwhelmed him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain, that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I will execute judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Verse 16. 
In the fourth generation, your descendants will return here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its limit. And verse 17, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the animal parts. And that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. Okay, so just a few things to note here. We see Yahweh showing up out of nowhere. And what is the first thing he does to, to Abram? What does he say? Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. And, and so Abraham immediately goes into, okay, you're, you're going to reward me, but I don't even have any children. Again, family was everything in the ancient uh, world. To have children and to pass on a legacy and a name for yourself and for your people group was everything to ancient Israel, right? Especially before Israel's even created. I mean, they haven't even been created yet. This is just Abram. And basically the Lord responds and says, you know, there's going to be a son who comes from your own body and he's going to be your heir. And he takes him outside. He shows him the stars and he's saying, hey, this is how many, you know, children you're going to have. This is going to be your people, right? And Abraham believed and it was accredited to him as righteousness, which is whether you want to sift through the theological impact of what that word means. The word righteousness is, it's a relational term. It means one who's in right standing to another, right? So that's what righteousness essentially means. But then in verse seven, we see something very similar to the ancient Near East treaty forms of a suzerain introducing himself. Verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur to give you this land to possess. Okay, now wait a second. If we can kind of go back in our mind, a suzerain would introduce themselves and then they would go into a historical prologue of all the things they've done and the things that they can do for this person. So Yahweh shows up and says, Abram, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur to give you this land to possess. And so immediately, we may not see all the six points, but immediately the Lord is introducing himself as a suzerain to this vassal named Abram. Now, the story goes on of, you know, the Lord tells him, you know, I want you to take these animals. And it says, and the sun went down and Abram fell sound asleep and a great terror overwhelmed him. Now, I just want to take a pit stop here. When Yahweh shows up, the text shows us that it says that when the sun was going down, and if you're, you're reading it in a different version like an ESV or maybe an NIV, it'll say a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Now, this is a clue, this kind of tagline, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Because if you, and it depends on what translation you read, but in Hebrew, this deep sleep, tardema, was essentially, this is the same word to describe what Yahweh did to Adam right before he created Eve. So Adam is put to sleep. And when Adam wakes up, he is presented with a covenant partner, Eve. So what the authors are trying to show us is, wait a second, a deep sleep is falling on Abram. Wait a second. That's kind of like Adam. Like Adam was put in a deep sleep. And when he woke up, there was a covenant partner standing before him. Now the writers are showing us that God is putting Abram to a deep sleep. Well, what's going to happen? Well, we know he's going to wake up to find a covenant partner, right? And the text speaks of... Abram fell sound asleep and a great terror overwhelmed him. Uh, some of the translations will say in a deep darkness came. Now, if you took a survey of the entire Old Testament, you would know that darkness, especially like impenetrable darkness, is often an aspect of what you would describe as a theophany. Basically, that that's a fancy term for when a deity appears to a person in physical form. And most specifically, it's what happens when we, like, for example, at Mount Sinai, we see that when Yahweh shows up, when he descends upon the mountain in material form to communicate with Moses, we, we see a deep darkness hovering over, over Mount Sinai. So when we read the, the term, a deep darkness, we have to read it in context that what God did, and even it's, it talks about in Genesis where, you know, the cool of the day, which is kind of like an improper translation, it's usually like the wind of the storm in Hebrew, right? So there was a storm that came into the garden, hence why kind of like Adam hid and whatnot. And when he always says, where were you? He said, I hid from you because I was afraid I'm naked. When the, when the writers are writing deep darkness and deep sleep, they're alluding to this theophany that there's a deity on the scene in physical form. And so it shows us in Genesis 15 that Yahweh is about to visit Abram in physical form. Now, you may be asking yourself, okay, I get that. That makes sense, Joey. But what's, what's up with like the cutting of animals in two? And why is there a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, right? Well, cutting animals in half, again, it was to cut a covenant. That was the term they would use in the ancient Near East. 
to cut a covenant. And the cutting of the covenant was essentially the cutting of the animals, right? So it's a step in the process of forming an alliance. But the smoking fire pot and flaming torch is really interesting um, because it says here uh, in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot with a flaming torch passed between the animals. And that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Obviously, if you're just reading Genesis 15 and you've never read the Bible, this would catch you way off guard of like a, a smoking torch pot. What is that? Like a fire pot and a, and a flaming torch. What is that? But odds are most of you have probably read your Bibles. So you'll know that whenever God shows up, and now I mean like Yahweh himself, whenever he shows up, whenever his presence manifests to humans, the way in which the humans describe his presence uses a lot of the same verbiage. They will use things like fire, clouds, and lightning, right? And so, for example, in Exodus 13, what happens when God leads Israel out of Egypt? Well, he leads them in a a pillar of fire and a cloud, okay? When he arrives in Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai, it talks about there being thunder and there being a storm, right? Clouds. Uh, In Exodus 40, God's presence, he, he covers the tabernacle upon completion, and it's like a storm, like a physical storm arriving on the scene. And if you want to even, I think even in Revelation 4, John sees the throne and, and it looks like concentrated presence on the throne and it, there's fire, there's lightning and clouds, etc. So the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch is the way in which the authors are showing us that this is the physical appearance of Yahweh. Now it's interesting to note this smoking fire pot and this torch passes between the animal. In the ancient Near East, when a vassal in a, in a suzerain form a covenant. When the vassal prepares the sacrifice and cuts them in two was a symbol for what would happen to the vassal if they failed to uphold the covenant with the suzerain. So if the vassal fails to show chesed, loyal love, the vassal symbolically was showing that if I don't honor the covenant, I will become like the animals. But it's interesting because when Abram wakes up, it's Yahweh walking through the sacrifice. And you're probably thinking, yeah, so what? Well, a suzerain doesn't offer himself as a sacrifice. They have no need to fail a vassal. So here is Yahweh walking through the sacrifices, essentially showing Abram that what has happened to these animals will happen to me if I fail to keep my oath to you, right? And Sandra Richter in her incredible book, The Epic of Eden, she comments on this scene and she says that that it's, it's here, it's here in Genesis 15 that we find the echoes of the gospel already you know, sounding off. Like, this is Yahweh offering himself up as a sacrifice already in Genesis 15. And obviously we see that in the New Testament with with the person of Christ. But that's why Jesus's death matters so much. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15, that he is the God, he's the God-man who walks his way to the cross. He, He became the sacrifice for man in order to fulfill the covenant back in Genesis 15 that man could not fulfill himself. I cast my mind to Calvary Where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds, his hands, his feet My Savior on that cursed tree Okay, we are about 75% through this episode. Uh, So we are almost done, but there are a few more important things that I want to talk about. Now, if you have your Bibles open, let's go ahead and flip to Exodus 20. Now, we've already seen God forming a covenant with Abram. Now, what we didn't really see is all the stipulations and the blessings and curses, etc., that we will find here in Exodus 20 when it comes to these ancient Near East treaty forms, right? So if you remember, just just as a, as a little revisit, there would be the suzerain would introduce himself. He would give a prologue of who he is and what he's done and what he, he's capable of doing. He would give the vassal stipulations detailing, you know, his expectations for them to, to show chesed, loyal love. Then he would go on to, and if you honor this, I will bless you, and this is what you will inherit. Uh, But if you don't, this is the curses that are going to come upon you. And there would be witnesses to this, and then there would be provision, right? A sacrifice given, a meal, sometimes even a meal shared. 
Now, I want you to flip over to Exodus 20, and I'm actually going to change my translation to the ESV just for the sake of reading. But if you're in Exodus 20, some of your you know subtitles will say the Ten Commandments. This is essentially when Moses receives the commandments of, of the law. And so I want to read Exodus 20 really briefly, and then we are going to explain why this matters so much. Now, it is in the book of Exodus, specifically chapter 20, that we find it's like shouting off the pages of the Bible, showing us that this is an ancient Near Eastern treaty form manifesting itself. And this is God's way of adopting what the ancient Israelites would have understood to be of forming a fictive kinship with a great power or a suzerain, right? Now, the backstory is Israel has kind of just escaped Egypt, and now they're camped at Mount Sinai. They spent about an entire year there. And in Exodus 19, specifically verse 4, Yahweh kind of instructs Moses, and he says, hey, I want you to tell the children of Israel that you guys saw what I did to Egypt. You saw what I did, and I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And if you obey me, Israel, if you obey me and keep my covenant, then you out of all nations will be the treasured possession. And he tells Moses, listen, the whole earth is mine, but if you honor this covenant, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Exodus 19, what we're, what we're reading, what the way that the biblical authors are structuring this is they're trying to show us that, that Yahweh's proving himself to not only Egypt, but to the Israelites to show them that it isn't Pharaoh to whom the Israelites belong, it's to Yahweh. And it isn't the gods of Egypt that are the Lord of the cosmos, it's Yahweh himself, right? So he he places judgment on the gods of Egypt, and that's a whole other story. But essentially, the plagues are, are a direct conflict against the gods of Egypt, and he rescues them out of Egypt. And then in Exodus 19, verse 5, the very next verse, it says that Yahweh tells Israel, hey, if you obey me and keep the covenant, you're going to be my treasured possession. Now, some of our translations will miss this, but in Hebrew, it's the word segula. And Carmen Imes, which, by the way, she has a book called Bearing God's Name, uh, why Sinai still matters, and it's in such a fascinating book. It's re- it's really cool. But she actually breaks down this word segula when Yahweh says in Exodus nineteen five that if you obey me, you'll be a treasured possession. He's in Hebrew he's saying if you obey me, you'll be a segula. And she t- she describes that the word segula appears eight times in the entire Old Testament, with only two times referring to kind of like a king's personal treasury. And the other six occurrences are actually figurative, and they actually refer to Israel as Yahweh's treasured possession, but it means much more than treasured possession. She talks about this. She says, the Bible is not alone in using this term to refer to people. The related ancient languages of the Ugaritic and Akkadian both employ an equivalent word, which refers to someone who enjoys a special status in a relation to the king, almost like a covenant partner who is especially treasured and entrusted with great responsibility. So in Exodus 19.5, when Yahweh says, if you obey me, you will be my segula, he is telling Israel that you will be my covenant partner and you will actually get to enjoy your status in your relationship to me as the God of the universe. And spoiler alert, it doesn't go well. But basically in Exodus 20, we'll just read this real quick, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So notice, we just went through a suzerain introduction. I am the Lord your God, that's his introduction, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house, some translations say bondage, out of the house of slavery, and then he immediately goes into a stipulation. So just to revisit, because I don't want to lose you here. Verse 2 is both the preamble, it's the introduction, but it's also a historical prologue. So the introduction is, I am the Lord your God. Step two would be the historical prologue, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, verse three, he's beginning the stipulations. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse four, you shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, etc. And so we know that he kind of goes through the Ten Commandments, right? It's interesting because as, you know, Yahweh introduces himself, it's going to jump all around. Like, For example, it's not like verse by verse by verse that we see the ancient Near East treaty form manifesting. Like, for example, uh, the historical prologue in Exodus, that's in Exodus 20, right? Like right there, I brought you up out of Egypt. This is what I've done for you. This is what I'm capable of doing. And then he says, you know, you're not going to have any other gods before me. So that's like the stipulation and the obligation imposed. Now it kind of jumps around a little bit. 
Yahweh will tell them actually like in Exodus 32, uh, verse 15, that Yahweh is giving Moses instructions on, hey, once this treaty is finalized and you transcribe it onto stone, like a tablet, uh, he tells them, I want you to store it. And if you know the biblical story, you know that Moses comes down with two tablets. And the backstory behind that is, as much as we love the children's Sunday programs, uh, most of them inaccurately depict Moses coming down the mountain with two tablets, five commandments on one, five commandments on the other. But again, if you clicked on the show notes below to the treaty tablet, you'll notice that there isn't five lines of verbiage. And what would happen is the suzerain would take a copy, the vassal would take a copy, right? They put it in the temple or wherever their kind of chief deity was to be, because that was the witness to the to the covenant, that deity, that temple. But Moses comes down with two copies of the commandments. And that's because Yahweh as a suzerain won't forget. So Moses gets to take two copies down with him. He takes a vassal copy and a suzerain copy, right? And it says in Exodus 32, verse 15, that Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets, with the testimony in his hands. And the tablets were written on both sides. So that's something your you know, Sunday school didn't tell you. On both sides, they were written on the front and the back. Now in Exodus 25, verse 21, Yahweh tells Moses, you are to put the atonement lid on the top of the ark, but inside of the ark, put the testimony I'm giving you. Here, Yahweh is saying, you're going to take both copies and you're going to put them in my house. You're going to put them in the temple because I not only am the suzerain, but I'm also the witness against you. That if you don't honor this, that these are the curses that are going to come upon you, right? And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 10 through 12, it says that he, being Moses, he commanded them at the end of seven years, at the appointed time of the cancellation of debts, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, you must read this law before them within their hearing. So remember, they would put it in the temple and then periodically they would pull out these treaty tablets to remind people, we are in a covenant with this person. We are in, we formed a treaty with this suzerain and the people would have to constantly be reminded. So in Exodus, or sorry, in Deuteronomy 31, here we see this enactment of at the end of seven years, when the time of, uh, you know, debts are canceled, when all Israel comes to appear before Yahweh in the place that he chooses, you need to pull these out and you need to read it before the people, like gather them together so that they may hear and learn about and fear the Lord your God. Now we see in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, and if you are like somebody who the first five books of the Bible are really tough for you, you know, (laughs) if you can envision sort of like a mountain, right? Like, and on each side of the mountain is just flat desert. It's just the wilderness, right? So you have the wilderness, then you have this mountain, and then on the other side of the mountain is just wilderness. That's kind of how the first five books of the Bible actually function. So the book of Genesis is obviously kind of creation. And then into Exodus, you have these desert travels and desert narratives. And as you get kind of into Exodus halfway, they start making their way up the mountain. And then the mountain experience, some of you may not know this, but if you want to take a note, the Mount Sinai narrative spans from Exodus 19 to actually Numbers 10. So Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are mostly about the Sinai narrative. And then if you're kind of going up on the top of the mountain and now you're coming down it, you're finishing the end of Numbers and into Deuteronomy, which is essentially them coming out of the desert and into the promised land, right? So you start in the desert with Exodus, you go up the mountain and it's all about Sinai. Like that's the pinnacle of the Hebrew Bible is the Mount Sinai narrative. That is the pinnacle of the first five books of the Bible. That's like the peak. Well, specifically Leviticus is, but, and as you come down the mountain and you come towards the end of Numbers, they go back into the desert. And in Deuteronomy is essentially Moses commissioning this new generation to be faithful to what? To the covenant that they formed with the suzerain, the God of the universe. And Deuteronomy, the entire book of Deuteronomy takes place in one day. It's interesting to note this. I'll just say this, and now I'm going off my notes, but when Moses is giving his speech in Deuteronomy, again, Moses is commanding the children of Israel, and he's telling them, listen, you you have to honor this covenant because this is the covenant that you formed with Yahweh. But it's interesting because these children weren't even born when Yahweh formed it with Moses. Like, these are the children of the parents who perished in the wilderness. But somehow Moses is saying, it doesn't matter if Yahweh came to your parents. This is your covenant with the Lord. Like, and he's going to treat you like he did with your parents. That if you are honoring to this covenant, he will bless you. But if you fail 
and you dishonor the covenant, you will be accursed, you will be exiled. And I think that's so interesting to note that Moses commissions this new generation of Israelites to take initiative and to take reverence to the covenant that their parents were a part of. But Moses doesn't even, he doesn't mention that. He says that this is the covenant that you, that God formed with you. And I think that that speaks volumes to us in the New Testament of like, well, yeah, this is just an old covenant. This is just something that like, it was only really important to Moses and Israel and and Jesus. And now we're kind of done with it. That is the covenant that God formed with you. You are in covenant with the Lord. going to get back into Exodus 20. So now the list of witnesses, like we already talked about it. The deities, obviously of both parties, the suzerain and the vassal would be summoned, but here it's Yahweh himself. He doesn't, he he is the God who forms the covenant and witnesses to it, right? And in Deuteronomy 4, Moses calls on witnesses and he says, I'm invoking heaven and earth to testify against you that if you do not obey this, they're going to be the witnesses against you. Okay, so now as we kind of close this this episode, I want to hit on one last thing. Blessings and curses. Now, this is something that we have a really hard time with because we see the Christian life, especially today, through obviously the legacy, like the life, death, and resurrection of, of Christ, okay? And so for some of us, the idea of blessing is very much a familiar concept. We love blessing. We love to be blessed. We write books about how to have a blessed life. And if we do this, we'll be blessed. And what we don't realize is that blessing is the one side of the covenant promise that if we are to honor the covenant between you know us and the Lord, that yes, we will be blessed. But curses are the thing that we often deem as like, well, that's demonic. That's, you know, that's somehow the enemy and he invokes curses on us. And, you know, we we are free from curses. We never get put under curses, etc. But a lot of times when we struggle with the idea of curses is because it's it's specifically tied to disobedience. Like, so wherever there is a curse or wherever there is something that there's oppression, etc., that is directly tied to, to disobedience towards the Lord. And so if we are to adopt and accept the idea that we get to have blessing because of Christ, we also have to realize that if we do not show chesed, if we are not the loyal, loving covenant partners of the suzerain, which is you know, God himself, it isn't that God curses us. It's that we step out of the protection of blessing and we open ourselves up to curses, right? And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, um, I'm going to read verse 1 through 2 and then 15. It essentially says, um, if you indeed, and again, this is Moses speaking to this new generation that's about to go into the land. If you obey the Lord your God and you are careful to observe his commandments, the Lord your God will elevate you above all the nations of the earth. Now, it's so funny because this is what Yahweh told Moses a few decades before. And it says, all these blessings will come to you in abundance if you obey the Lord your God. But if you ignore him and you're not careful to keep the commandments and statutes, then curses will come upon you in full force. I like that. That is Moses's act of retelling the ancient Near East treaty of when God came to us on Mount Sinai. He, he was the suzerain who offered protection to us. He was the suzerain who said, if you honor me, I'll protect you and you will become, you know, my segala, you'll become my treasured possession. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen to you. And obviously we see, you know, these, these younger Israelites now going into the promised land, their parents were the ones who did not, they were not the faithful vassal to the suzerain and they didn't trust in him as a suzerain. They didn't trust in his ability. And so we see that at the end of, you know, the first five books in Deuteronomy, we see Moses commissioning this new generation and retelling, this is who God is. This is what he's done for you. And even though it was your parents' generation in which he actually did it, he did it for you too. And Moses walks them through that ancient Near Eastern treaty form. He introduces them to who God is. He gives them a, a historical prologue of what God's done. He gives them stipulations like this is what you're going to do and this is what you're obligated to do. He lays out the blessing and curses. And then, like as we said, he even invokes the witnesses. And so that kind of summarizes what covenant meant in the Old Testament. And again, this is 
very very much an introductory episode to the Old Testament. If you guys are like, man, I love this, like this fascinates me, like uh, I want to learn more about it, I'm going to link some stuff in the show notes below, some articles, some books that I think you would find just really helpful. But my goal in this episode is to get you to see that when we have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we have to realize that covenant dominates the entire narrative of the Bible. It's not just that God is good and he loves us, it's that God formed a covenant with us. He, he's chosen to, to step into a relationship with a peculiar people who do not deserve relationship with him and who are much like the vassals. We are the weaker party. We have nothing to really offer our suzerain, the Lord our God. And, and that's something to, to note, that the vassal usually would invoke some type of relationship. But in the biblical narrative and in the Christian story, God is the suzerain who approaches us and says, I know that you can't do this on your own. Let me form a covenant with you. Let me provide for you. Let me protect you. But here are the stipulations that you're to honor me and you're to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, body, strength, right? And the human narrative is that just like Israel, it's so hard for us to honor that covenant because we have temptation, we have lies, and we have, you know, cares of the world, etc. And what we're going to do is in the next episode, we're going to get into... Um, covenant in the New Testament, and we're going to see how Jesus embodies loyal love to the covenant. He was the one who fulfilled the covenant. He was the one who honored uh, the covenant between Yahweh and Israel, and he became that God-man, just like we talked about in Genesis 15, who walks through the sacrifice of death. He becomes almost like the vassal who would essentially become like the animals. Jesus becomes like that for us to redeem us because we have violated the covenant found in Genesis 15. So I hope some of this helps. Again, some of you may need to re-listen to this and that's fine. And if you are uh, a fan of the show, I would encourage you, would you please give us a rating? And if you want to support the show um, for as little as five bucks a month, we have a Patreon link in the show notes below. But we would really appreciate it if you rated the show and we will see you on the next episode, Covenant in the New Testament.